This season of The Francis Effect is sponsored in part by Franciscan Media, seeking to spread the gospel in the spirit of St. Francis. Franciscan Media publishes books by authors like Richard Rohr, Heather King, and Ronald Rollheiser. Get 25% off your first order in the store when you use the code FRANCISFX, that's Francis, the letter F, and the letter X, at franciscanmedia.org. That's franciscanmedia.org. This season of The Francis Effect is brought to you by Liturgical Press in Collegeville, Minnesota. Liturgical Press is a trusted publisher of resources on liturgy, scripture, theology, and spirituality, evolving to serve the changing needs of the Christian church. They produce resources for pastoral leaders, teachers, engaged learners, and all readers looking for quality books on faith and culture. Lit Press books are available at your favorite book retailer and online at litpress.org. That's litpress.org. Hello and welcome to the Francis Effect Podcast. My name is David Dalt and I host a radio show called Things Not Seen about culture and faith and I teach at the Institute of Pastoral Studies at Loyola University Chicago. I'm here with my two good friends Heidi Schlumpf and Dan Haran. Father Dan Haran is director of the Center for Spirituality and professor of philosophy, religious studies, and theology at St. Mary's College in Notre Dame, Indiana. And Heidi Schlumpf is executive editor and vice president of National Catholic Reporter. Every couple of weeks we get together to talk about news and events through a lens of our shared Catholic faith. Heidi and Father Dan, good morning. How are you both? Heidi, how have you been? Well, we're having a little bit of a Halloween hangover over here in the Schlumpf Butler household. So lots of trick-or-treaters in our neighborhood last night. And our kids, even though they're in seventh and eighth grade, still dress up and go trick-or-treating. They were a Greek goddess and a traveling door-to-door salesman. So how about you guys? Did you get a lot of get a lot of candy or trick-or-treaters? I nearly forgot it was Halloween. <laughs> so just <laughs> that's how you you know that I'm a religious without children and who's not on the radar. In fact, I was going to meet up with a fellow theologian. We're we're co-editing a book right now, and so we were finishing some edits and we're just coincidentally planned to meet on Sunday afternoon to hammer out a few things in person. And I'm driving to where we're meeting up and and I just saw like packs of kids and parents and costumes. I said, oh, that's, yeah, that's right. It's Halloween. So yeah, it looked like folks are having fun, although it's pretty chilly here. So I, I don't, bundled up, I guess, is how people were getting their candy. Well, we went out last night and both of my kids, you know, they skipped last year because of COVID. And this year we had a beautiful day. We went a, a little earlier than we would have normally gone just to kind of avoid some of the crowds. Here in Hyde Park, it's kind of a Halloween destination site for uh, a lot of the South Side. And, you know, we would go to certain streets and it would literally be like a rock concert, the number of, you know, kind of crowds of parents and children going about. But both of the kids, had costumes that my daughter put a lot of thought into her costume. My son basically threw on a cloak and picked up his Harry Potter wand over a t-shirt and that was his costume and, you know, different, different approaches. But really it was just one of the most enjoyable Halloweens I've had in a long time. And I love October and I love Halloween especially. But the other thing that happened last night that was really powerful for me was it's the first time that I've really been out in large crowds in almost the last 18 to 20 months. And I began to have uh, really kind of spiking PTSD reactions. My hypervigilance was really up. I had a metallic taste in my mouth from the adrenaline surging and the cortisol, all of that. And one of the things that as we were walking home in a more quiet space after that, my wife Kira kind of reflected to me and she said, you used to go out and be in crowds all the time. And maybe this was happening to you all the time. And maybe some of the stability that you've had over the last few months with your neurochemistry is the result of not being stressed like this all the time. So let's keep an eye on that. So it's just a good data point for me to get and to realize, wow, maybe I was always just kind of prompting myself to be in a state of mind that was not healthy. And maybe as I return to more typical behavior as COVID begins to lessen, and we'll talk about that a little bit in the episode as it goes on, but I'm going to be paying real attention to that now that 
I've kind of gotten this insight from Kira about kind of how my head might be working. So I'm, I'm grateful always to get insight about, you know, ways to not be freaked out all the time. So that's a good thing for me. Just, just a good Halloween and good insight about my skull. These are all good things. That's so good to hear, David. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. And, and Dan, teaching, is it wrapping up or do you still have a few weeks left there at St. Mary's? So our semester, we just came back from our fall break, our kind of midterm break. And yeah, no, we're going to, when does the semester end? Really the mid of December. So got a ways to go. But folks who are in higher ed or who are teachers, who are students know that the fall gets kind of choppy when you have a fall break and then Thanksgiving's coming up. Those of us who are, are in the theological world, we also have AARSBL which is a bit of a weird hybrid this year. I'm planning to go in person, though some people have been planning to go in person and then I've decided to go and participate just with the virtual side of things. Some people are going only virtual. Honestly, it's a big goat rodeo right now and we'll see how it goes. And I take it, you know, David, you're probably not going to AAR this year. Yeah. No, I'm going to avoid that like the plague. I don't like conferences under the best of circumstances and COVID has given me a great excuse to just be very introverted. That being said, I'm also the president of an AARSBL adjacent scholarly organization. And so we're strategizing as we're coming out of COVID for how to kind of have programming that learns from lessons of the last two years and how to have events that are more inclusive and less geocentric than they have been in the past. So I think that virtuality may be something that we lean into more heavily as we move forward. Well, let me just, it's in San Antonio, right? Because San Antonio is a fun city. <laughs> well, I'll be there. So, and it is. It <laughs> yeah, is. Yeah. I might pop in virtually. Well, I was just going to point out that piggybacking on the Halloween that we're recording on Monday, which is All Saints Day, and tomorrow is All Souls Day, which also, in addition to, you know, enjoying the holiday of Halloween as Catholics and Christians, we celebrate that a lot in our family. So we have an ofrenda altar at our home. And we got the sad news that our former pastor, Father Bill Keneally, a Chicago priest, and, and had some national prominence because he was very outspoken on a lot of progressive issues. He died last week, so I'm going to the wake tonight and the funeral tomorrow. And I thought, how liturgically correct to die so that your funeral is on All Souls Day. He was such a great priest and literally the main reason I'm still Catholic today, because I've struggled with my own relationship to the institutional church, and, and he really helped me to be able to stay connected to the parish of St. Gertrude. So just a little shout out to anybody who might have known Father Bill. Thanks for sharing that, Heidi. Yeah. It's always sad when somebody, as St. Francis says, embraces our sister bodily death, but it's great that his memory, you know, has such significance for so many people. Well, on that note, I also, as I was out in the neighborhood last night, bumped into some acquaintances that I know from the Lumen Christie Institute, and I got word that their director, Thomas Levergood, passed away recently as well. And Lumen Christie and I have not always seen eye to eye on things, but I have always felt welcome at their events, and Thomas was always very hospitable to me, even in our disagreements. And so I just, I, I want to pray for his repose and, and be thankful for the good work that they're doing in trying to further Catholic conversations there on the corner of the University of Chicago. So he will definitely be missed. And I know that their good work will continue. You and I have been at events together there. They are. Yeah, I can echo everything you just said, David. Thomas was, was always a gentleman and certainly interested in engaging in all sorts of dialogues. Yeah, he really reached out to me as an NCR reporter and editor, too. So I, I think he was really living his faith in a great way. I'll never forget. He lived, you know, in the Hyde Park neighborhood and early in the morning would walk his dog and smoke a pipe. And so he would, you know, distinctive in the neighborhood, you know, this this character and of, of quite a physical and uh, personal stature. So, yeah, he will be missed. Yeah. So I was just going to remind all our listeners that we will keep all of their loved ones who've died, too, in our prayers throughout the month of November. So we, that's a practice we do here in our family. So we're happy to extend it to the whole Francis Effect family, too. Absolutely. And while we're talking about that, we just want to say also a thank you to uh, several listeners who have recently become Patreon supporters. So thank you, Carol and Ryan and Anne and Vic for your recent support. Also want to give a shout out to Nancy, who sent us some support outside of Patreon recently. All of that is appreciated, but we especially appreciate it just when you tell your friends about the show and let them know that this is here and that this is a resource for folks. Also, if you are listening in a realm that allows you to offer some kind of feedback. If you can give us a review and some comments, that's also always very helpful. 
And I also want to just mention, I got word recently that we have broken the hot 100 of podcasts on Apple in Lithuania, which was a surprise to me. So for our Lithuanian listeners, I want to say Labas, Labayachu, and Milionos Jesudeka. I want to say just thank you, thank you, thank you for being listeners and and for telling your uh, Lithuanian friends about the show as well. Well, on the show today, we're going to revisit our conversations about COP26, which is kicking off this week as we're recording this. We're going to talk about President Biden's recent trip to the Vatican and his conversations with the Pope. And we're going to be talking about the Food and Drug Administration's moves towards allowing kids between the ages of 5 and 11 to be vaccinated. So all that is coming up here on The Francis Effect. Thank you so much for being with us. We will be back in just a moment. Welcome back to The Francis Effect. I'm David Dalt, and I'm here with Heidi Schlumpf and Father Dan Haran. Every couple of weeks, we get together to discuss a variety of topics from a perspective informed by our shared Catholic faith. On the last episode, we spent some time discussing the upcoming COP26 conference, the United Nations two-week climate change summit that is taking place in Glasgow, Scotland. Now that the COP26 conference is officially underway, having opened on Sunday, we want to continue our conversation about this important gathering, given the urgency of the subject matter being discussed. At the opening ceremony, Patrick Espinoza, the Executive Secretary of the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change, or UNFCCC, said, quote, we stand at a pivotal point in history, adding, quote, humanity faces several stark but clear choices. We either choose to achieve rapid and large-scale reductions of emissions to keep the goal of limiting climate warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius, or we accept that humanity faces a bleak future on this planet, unquote. In addition to civil and political leaders, many faith leaders are gathering in Glasgow to signal the support of religious traditions for attending to the dire cry of the earth and cry of the poor, as Pope Francis said in Laudato Si. Those who have arrived for the COP26 conference representing faith traditions have spoken to journalists about their prayers for climate justice and the spiritual roots of their political and social engagement. One such group of faith-based climate activists walked hundreds of miles in pilgrimage across the United Kingdom to arrive in Glasgow. Helen Elways, one of the pilgrims, told NCR reporter Brian Rowey, quote, I don't know what we can do more than pray at this point. And then she added, quote, we do everything we can to help the leaders to make the vital, crucial decisions that need to be taken, unquote. Dan, as the conference continues over the next week and a half, what should we be doing? How should we be thinking about it? Well, first of all, I think the folks you just mentioned there at the end who are praying, I think that's a good place to begin. It's not an underestimation. It's not a superficial thing to say that prayer is important. I mean, we need a lot of prayer in this regard. Prayer, I think, in particular to the Holy Spirit, because not only does the Spirit kind of animate all of creation and and draws near to us as God's imminent presence. But as the Psalms remind us, you know, we pray to the Holy Spirit to come and renew the face of the earth. And boy, do we need some renewal on this planet. The other thing I, I think is important for us to to keep in mind is to call to mind and to bring to attention and to discuss and to think about, to be mindful of this event taking place right now. I mean, I have to be Honest, I'm glad we're talking about this for the second episode in a row because it's it deserves that attention. And maybe our listeners are thinking, oh, geez, you know, will these three talk about something else already? And the answer is we will not because there isn't going to be an earth on which you can listen to any podcasts if we don't take this seriously. You know, it's almost a cliche at this point to say time is running out. It's also almost a cliche to say that we can still do something, but that window is closing faster and faster day by day. I'll just contrast, for instance, my experience. Two weeks ago, I was in the United Kingdom. I was in London to give some talks, and I was struck immediately by how the average person on the street and people that I interacted with were aware of the COP26 meeting taking place north of the border in Scotland. That does not surprise me, frankly, that Europeans and, and our British sisters and brothers are a little bit more attentive to this 
Part of it has to do with U.S. politics. Part of it has to do with the way in which our news cycle, I think, leads folks who are not actively pursuing worldwide or global news to to get stuck in these ruts. It was interesting. I, I gave one lecture on a Saturday, and the person who introduced me is from Scotland originally, a wonderful woman named Patricia, who I've known for many years. She, in her introduction, began by acknowledging this event that was taking place a week later, that was going to begin a week later. And so here we were in a public lecture, a public setting, where it was just a matter of fact, where people were conscious of and calling to mind and calling to action their fellows with regard to this conference. And I just have not heard anything, virtually anything in the United States. I noticed the New York Times is covering it, which is great. And I'm sure other international news organizations are covering it. I know National Catholic Reporter is. But frankly, I'm, I'm a little bit flabbergasted. I'm shocked, but not surprised as that Trumpian expression has come to be used so often. But I don't know. What are you two thinking about this as we're now underway? We're, you know, when this drops, we're going to be halfway through the first week of this conference. Yeah, I agree with you, Dan. We can't discuss this enough. And I was struck by that very same comment that you just made about there's not going to be an earth left to do fill in the blank. My son made the same comment, said that he was sharing that during a class discussion. So I think I might have mentioned before that I homeschool my son for religious ed because he uh, doesn't fit so well in a traditional classroom there. And we decided, or I decided together though, we decided that we would read and study Laudato Si in part because my son struggles with religious belief and some parts of that. And I thought, let's look at some of the church's moral teachings where our church leader here in the person of Pope Francis could not be clearer about how this is part of our Christian faith. It is part of our responsibility to one another to to care about this issue and to do something. So that's been really a blessing to be able to go back through that document through the eyes of a 14-year-old. But I would say also, I was a little bit disappointed that the Pope decided not to go and appear in person at the COP26 meeting. I think there's still some talk that he might have a video statement, but his message is still being heard there. Obviously, the delegation is there. But on Friday, he did a video with, I think it was with the BBC, and he really had a strong uh, statement about how, you know, decisions and rapid action needs to happen. And then again, on Sunday, he mentioned it, I believe, after the Angelus and specifically mentioned flooding going on in the Philippines and, of course, all the natural disasters in Haiti. So I think we are still hearing from the Pope. So I, I think Christians and Catholics need to pay attention to this. What's been gratifying to see is how so many people of different religious faiths are coming together in Scotland to pray, but also kind of push a little bit politically for things to happen, for them to come to the agreements that could stop the warming to the 1.5 degrees Celsius. That's been really encouraging. And I I encourage people to follow Brian Rowey at EarthBeat and NCR. Maybe not every uh, publication is sending a reporter there, but it was really important for us to make sure that someone was there covering the Catholic and other religious angles to this meeting. Listeners will know that I work on several shows, not all of which I am a voice on, and I work extensively with Commonweal Magazine on their podcast. And in a recent episode that I've been working on, they have a commentator who is looking back at the ways in which fossil fuel companies, much like the tobacco companies, have utilized public relations and even creating curriculums for children to try and cloud over or obfuscate the effects of climate change that have been known about at the scientific level for generations now, since the early part of the 20th century and really by the mid-20th century, we kind of knew what was happening. But the public has had a lot of kind of, there's been a lot of resistance to the public getting access to that knowledge or getting clear access to that knowledge. And that's partly why I'm so glad, Heidi, to hear you mention Laudato Si. It's interesting and good to find a religious document that is trying to engage with actual clear science and trying to draw a moral case about the ways in which we should be engaging with this as faithful Catholics, as 
faithful Christians, as people who believe that in some way our created world is a grace to us that needs to be preserved and maintained and not simply exploited. So all those things I think are very heartening, and I'm so happy to hear you talking about this with your children. We talk about it with our children as well. Well, and I would see your grace given to us and raise it a uh, sense of kinship. I mean, leave it to the Franciscan to point this out. But, you know, I I was this morning, actually, as we're recording this on Monday, I was on a, for me, local time, very early morning Zoom lecture for a very late presentation in Singapore. So I joined about 120 people where I was giving a talk. And in the Q&A, one of the things that was asked was about, you know, Franciscan lenses through which to view the world today. And and one of the things I emphasized was creation, which is more than the birdbath industrial complex, as I like to say, as cute as Francis and the deer and the birds are. The profound truth that he, he intuited through scripture and through his experience of the divine was a simple fact that we are creation too. And we depend, we're interdependent, we're interrelated, we are connected to all that exists. We are, as Genesis 2 reminds us, made ha'adamah from the earth, and science confirms this. And, you know, I think this is something, I, I sound like a broken record sometimes, and even some Franciscans are a little discomfited by this bare fact that we are creatures. We are first and foremost, we are part of creation. As I like to say, there are two categories of existence at all. It's God and not God. And we're on the not God side of things along with everything else that exists. I bring that up because, you know, yeah, we we have some atoning to do for our anthropocentrism, for our kind of dominion and subduing and manifest destiny sort of attitudes that have caused such grievous harm in the more than human world. But we also have to change our way of being in acknowledgement of the fact with humility that we are part of this created world. I think that's, you know, Pope Francis alludes to this, maybe doesn't use as strong language sometimes, but the anthropocentrism he highlights, justly highlights as, a, as an evil, is rooted in our hubris and in our lack of humility, that we think we are more than we are. We think we're other than the created world, and we're not. We're part of it. So that's one thing I want to highlight. The second thing I also want to highlight is You know, I think, and I imagine many of our listeners may feel this way, that, okay, this is a meeting taking place on the other side of the Atlantic. You know, there are these various natural disasters that take place here and there. You know, we might think of typhoons in the Philippines or earthquakes in Haiti or, you know, wildfires in isolated parts of North America or Australia or the Amazon. Okay, yeah, so what? If we have eyes to see, as Scripture points out— then we can see the ways in which this is happening at the very local level. And I'll give you an example from my own experience here in South Bend, Indiana. You know, listeners, longtime listeners know I'm a runner. When I lived in Chicago, I loved running the lake trail up along Lake Michigan. Here in South Bend, I enjoy the trail systems that we have here, particularly along the St. Joseph River. Well, the St. Joseph River is a pretty essential waterway, a significant one that goes right through the heart of South Bend, a city of about 120,000 people. And folks may remember during the Democratic primary debates, then Mayor Pete, now Secretary of Transportation Pete Buttigieg, made a reference to something that I'm seeing play out this very week, which is he said, you know, we had when he was mayor a once in a 500 year flood of the St. Joseph River that caused a great amount of damage. And he said, however, two years later, that happened again. So that in a three year period, they had two allegedly once in 500 year floods. This is, you know, in a a medium size, small size city in the US, lots of other places around this country are dealing with this. And, And I'm seeing it this week because the flood level of the St. Joseph River is 5.5 feet. And as of yesterday, it was at 5.4 feet. And there are parts of the trail where the river has totally overcome the grassy areas, the parks, the trees, and and have come up along the running trail and it is encroaching on private property. So, you know, this is scary stuff that's happening in these smaller ways, but are going to affect lots and lots of people. And, And I think we just need to tie together. You know, you asked uh, David earlier, like, what can we do? What should we be thinking about? We need to tie all these kind of discrete or disparate instances together as part of a greater whole. And yet, (laughs) so this should be right, kind of a no brainer, right? And yet I read this morning at the other NCR, the National Catholic Register owned by the Eternal Word Television Network, uh, a headlined story that says, 
Holy See's uncritical support for COP26 causes concern. And it said there are growing concerns that the Holy See is lending its weight to, quote, climate alarmism that's being used to usher in policies and ideologies antithetical to church teaching. So we see even within our own church and certainly in our own country, especially I'm thinking about Biden trying to pass his social agenda and running into problems. There's not a single Republican willing to support the environmental policies he wants to implement, including Joe Manchin. And so I, I understand when people from states that are heavily dependent on, you know, for example, coal as an industry have concerns, but we have to start thinking about what's called a just transition, a fair transition for people who would be negatively affected by the way things need to change. Otherwise, we're, like you said, we're really going to be in trouble. Your point, Heidi, really highlights, I think, something that we who might identify as progressive Catholics or the Catholic left, we, we need to keep in mind again and again. And that is the people who go to articles like the National Catholic Register, one that you noted, or that watch EWTN, they want very strongly to be good, faithful Catholics. And that's one reason why I'm so glad, Dan, when you are giving resources from the depths of our tradition to say, or even, Heidi, when you mentioned something like Laudato Si, it is possible to be a good and faithful Catholic and be very concerned about and very clear about the dire kind of situation that we are facing. We should be alarmist because the data is alarming and there really isn't the kind of uh, disagreement at the scientific level that that some of these people who have been paid in public relations firms to kind of, you know, put that message out into the public sphere would like us to think that there is. It's really very concluded and we have very little time. And so... I think as we're kind of moving towards the end of this segment, the question that I want to ask both of you is how do we balance urgency and hope? How do we balance not getting overwhelmed by this? You know, some people kind of talk about it sometimes like it's a 99% problem with a 1% solution, and that's overwhelming for us. How can we think of it more like an 80-20 problem or a 60-40 problem where where our actions at the local level, at the individual level, can still even make a difference at this point? I struggle with that myself, David. I, I don't know. And and honestly, I used to be a little bit more hopeful. I think the global pandemic has made me less hopeful, particularly when we look at our own country. I'm constantly frustrated with my fellow citizens in the United States. Having just been abroad in, in the United Kingdom for a few days, you know, a couple of weeks ago, it's a it's just a reminder that the rest of the world, and trust me, the Brits have their own problems. <laughs> you know, they'll be the first to admit that. But there's just other ways of being in the world. And and I think the vastness of the United States geographically, I think our numbers, we're not the largest, you know, we're not like India or China, but the the vastness and the isolation, the United States is truly isolated. And, it, and the U.S. benefits globally from, I would say, on a grand scale, what individuals benefit from in various systems of oppression. And we think of this in global oppression. We have a U.S.-based privilege that because the th- way things work in the world accrue to our collective benefit, whether that's military force, political force, financial force, you know, climate, you know, resource force, and so forth, then we don't see, or we're dis- we're kind of disincentivized from seeing the way that it harms disproportionately other people in the world. When you look at the United Kingdom or Ireland, or they look to the mainland of the continent, these countries, much like other parts of other continents around the globe, I think of Africa, I think of South America and, and Central America, where, where folks are living in smaller geographic countries, much closer together, you don't have the luxury of being in such denial, such delusion. So I, my hope is mitigated tremendously by the frustration I experience because we are the most resourced, the most powerful, the most influential country. And yet, even in the Biden administration that has sought to try to reinstate some of the things that were pulled back under the Trump administration with regard to climate, I'm still incredibly pessimistic. I really am. And I look to our bishops in the United States and their exceptions to the global rule as well. I mean, there are some lunatic bishops here and there around the globe, but boy, do we have a really dysfunctional bishops conference. And that's not an insult. That's just merely a description that even the bishops themselves would identify. And certainly the Holy See does. So 
I don't know, David. It's hard for me to find hope. I used to have much greater sense of eschatological hope, but seeing the way that the pandemic has led people to be anti-vaxxers and to just completely make stuff up gives me little confidence that we're going to be able to kind of come to some sort of collective awakening. And I think you hit the nail on the head through capitalism, which is there are people who are benefiting all the way to the bank from this. And as long as there's that incentive, you know, what can one do? Well, thank you for that challenging question, David. I would, I can maybe balance a little bit of your pessimism, Dan. Well, I don't look to the bishops for hope. Maybe that's part of my thing is that so many issues that I've fought for my whole life are seemingly hopeless and are things that I may not see immediate effects for, but that hasn't stopped me from fighting them. I I don't know. I look in my kids' eyes and I just can't give up on this issue because it literally is life or death, not just for them, but for their birth families and for their fellow global citizens around the world. So as a family, we try to take a global perspective and not just think about the United States. And so I look at them and I look at their generation and I find some hope in at least they're taking this issue very seriously. Yeah, I'll just say I should be clear that I have not lost hope. I'm just I was going on a uh, explanatory rant about why it's hard to find hope and why that's a tough question to your point, Heidi, that it's a challenging question, David. And I will say too, just to echo, obviously, I don't have kids, but I'm deeply inspired and I'm on the record in many settings saying this publicly and I say it as much as I can. Gen Z is a deeply inspiring generation to me. Very, very inspiring because they see a kind of clarity and a certain truth that the older generations can delude themselves into avoiding. But you're right. It's life and death for them. And they know that. I think what's what's kind of upsetting to me is how whether it's ageism, older people, middle-aged people who look down on the young and say, well, you're naive, you're this, that, and the other, we've always done it this way. That is very common. For as much as there's ageism toward the septa and octogenarians of our communities, there's ageism against the young. And that's a real problem as well that needs to be named because it's the Gen Z group and younger millennials who need to lead us and we need to shut up and listen to them. Well, I know that we will be coming back to the matter of the climate again and again as future episodes unfold. But for right now, we're going to need to leave this conversation at this particular point. So you're listening to The Francis Effect. We'll be back in just a moment. Welcome back to The Francis Effect. I'm Dan Horan, and I'm here with David Dolt and Heidi Schlumpf. Every couple of weeks, we get together to discuss a variety of topics from a perspective informed by our shared Catholic faith. When President Joe Biden and Pope Francis held a private meeting last week, the first news was about its length. At more than 75 minutes, it was likely a record for what is believed to be the longest meeting between Francis and any world leader. For comparison, Pope Francis met with President Donald Trump for about 30 minutes in 2017, and he met with President Barack Obama for 52 in 2014. During their meeting, Biden and Francis talked about climate change, the COVID-19 pandemic, the needs of migrants and refugees, and human rights, including freedom of religion and conscience. Biden praised the Pope as, quote, the most significant warrior for peace I've ever met, end quote. But it's what Biden revealed after the meeting that really made headlines. In response to reporters' questions, Biden said that Pope Francis told him that he was a good Catholic and that he should keep receiving communion. Of course, this comes as the U.S. bishops are set to consider a document on the Eucharist at their November meeting, a document that was initiated because some bishops wanted to single out pro-choice politicians and deny them communion, politicians like Joe Biden. So the Pope's words, which were neither confirmed nor denied by the Vatican, could affect the debate at the upcoming bishops' meeting. The initial reaction from some conservative Catholics was to question the truth, or at least the context of the statement. But Francis himself has said that he has never denied anyone communion. And other high-ranking Vatican officials, including Ghanaian Cardinal Peter Turkson, have also cautioned against the use of communion as a weapon. Heidi, NCR was busy covering this news last week. Where do things stand now? Yeah, so Friday was a very busy news day in our newsroom because we were covering, we had our Vatican correspondent covering the meeting. Now, there was a little bit of 
back and forth of controversy because initially they were going to live stream the introductory part where they greet and exchange gifts, and that was canceled at the last minute. Now, some people see a conspiracy there, but I'm pretty sure it was just a technical issue that they didn't want the whole uh, news pool there. So instead, they just had the one camera. So we did see video of them, and it was looked like they were jovial in their greeting of one another and having a good introduction. Then they went into what was the private meeting where only uh, the two of them and their translators were there. So it was during that portion of the meeting where, according to Joe Biden, the Pope made these comments about going to communion. Now, we don't have a lot of context about how they came about or what was said. And already we're seeing some, you know, kind of questioning whether this was really said or if it was meant in a different way, maybe not meant to refer to the controversy about bishops who want to deny communion to pro-choice politicians. But there are others who are kind of quick to interpret it as, oh, this must be some sort of rebuke to those of who want to deny communion. So I, I'm not sure because I don't think the Vatican, of course, won't uh, comment on this either way since it happened in this private meeting. But I think what we can see is what happened on Sunday uh, a couple days after when Joe Biden was having a press conference with reporters about the other meetings he was in Rome to do. But someone asked him a question about the Pope and, and his comments. And he really gave a long answer in which he talked about how important meeting the Pope back shortly after his son Beau had died and that when the Pope came to the U.S. for his visit and how much that meant to his family when they were grieving. He said, this is Joe Biden talking about the Pope. This is a man who is of great empathy. He's a man who understands that part of his Christianity is to reach out and to forgive. And so I just find my relationship with him one that I personally take great solace in. He is really, truly genuine, decent man. And so we could just see in the way he was talking about the Pope and referencing the Pope's previous Who Am I to Judge comment, which was about LGBT folks, to know that he knows the areas that the church and he as a politician might uh, disagree, but he also knows that the Pope and the church and he have quite a few areas of agreement. And those are the things they primarily spoke about. His final comment in that press conference really sums it up about the two of them. He said that the Pope is everything I learned about Catholicism from the time I was a kid going from grade school through high school. So just think of the generation that Joe Biden is and the, and the Vatican II Catholic that he is and how this Pope is somebody that there's this, it seems to be this mutual respect. So remains to be seen how this is all going to play out at the November bishops meeting, but it certainly was an interesting turn. Yeah, I, I think it is interesting. It's not at all surprising. And uh, maybe carrying over my, I guess, pessimistic attitude of the day from our previous segment, I don't know that it's going to have any effect, frankly, on the USCCB, because the bishops who have already voiced their concern, you know, the agenda of some of their colleagues in wanting to draft a document that would be targeting you know, pro-choice politicians. I say so-called because it's complicated. Joe Biden famously personally opposes abortion and wants to see it reduced, but also recognizes a certain juridical responsibility he has, as he said on the record. Now, people can disagree with that. And there are a lot of Catholics who don't find that substantive enough, you know. And it is interesting how the pendulum swings in some 60 years because, you know, <laughs> the the second Catholic president of the United States is not Catholic enough, according to some. Meanwhile, you know, John F. Kennedy was too Catholic for others in his time. So, you know, you can't win. You do, you're damned if you do, damned if you don't. But I will say that I think this is where a global perspective is useful and worthwhile. I think Pope Francis has precisely that. And in thinking about somebody like Joe Biden, who is, whether you like his politics or his political party or not, you know, one of the things I find deeply offensive is when people try to impugn his sort of character and his moral standing and him as a decent, genuine person, which basically every single person who's ever known him who agrees with him or disagrees with him can affirm. I think that Pope Francis sees in him, you know, somebody who is what most civil leaders should be, a man of faith who's not perfect, no one is, but who is sincere and caring and, and cares about those who are most in need and the issues of our day. So 
I'm not at all surprised in, in this language of being a good Catholic. I have no problem with that. I think the Holy Father is exactly right. I've said that about Joe Biden before as well. What makes a good Catholic is somebody who can demonstrate their faith by their actions. And uh, there's a lot more to say about that. But I think, you know, I have a lot of questions for uh, Catholics of, of other political parties, including those in the previous administration who were as antithetical to church teaching or more so than any Democrat might be. So I think of, you know, Pompeo and I think of others who were, were very keen to support capital punishment, for instance, actually seem to have a thirst for that kind of death. David, what are your thoughts? Well, so I've been paying attention to the kind of right-wing responses to the visit. God and bless you. What interested me about that is it really went from substance very quickly to character assassination. And so, for example, the length of the meeting, which we've talked about already in this conversation as being notable and being remarkable and and probably indicating a depth of conversation, has been spun in the right-wing media instead towards, and I'm not going to get into details, but kind of physical infirmity on President Biden's part and, and certain faculty failings of President Biden's digestive processes that caused the length of the meeting. Basically, just trying to play up the idea that Biden is an old, feeble, infirm man and that the Pope wasn't really talking to him all this time, but rather they were cleaning up messes there in the receiving room. And I really, I, I mean, for me, I'm finding that to be both indicative of something, but also kind of remarkable in the sense of a, a wider stretch of what we're seeing, which is when there are issues or when there is a real identification or a real indication of kind of fraternity or amicality or affirmation of President Biden by the Vatican or by the Pope, it's immediately seen as something else, an inability to see what is in front of you, a kind of scales on the eyes, if you will. And so I'm just I'm constantly thinking about that. And I'm trying to think about that in light of what we've been saying about Biden's comments. So when I'm hearing Biden talking about kind of his private remarks with the Pope, there's a part of me that in light of the way that that this was spun by the right, I'm like, is he spinning it you know, his own direction? Is this all spin? Is this? So I'm, I find that I'm deeply cynical about the meeting, even while I'm hopeful about the meeting, kind of keeping with the theme of what we've been talking about through the entire conversation. Well, that's interesting. You should say that, David, because I'm sure there's a little bit of spinning going on both sides. I had not heard those um, analyses from the right, right wing that you mentioned that sound really out there. I will say it's, somewhat impolitic for Biden to have shared what was said in the private meeting. Now, granted, he was asked a question, but I think we had our columnist uh, wrote a column that kind of said, oh, this is Joe Biden. He's always you know, kind of saying things he's not supposed to say. But so I do think there you generally heads of state would not share something of that personal nature with the rest of the world. What I found interesting is that they clearly had a conversation that went beyond just two heads of state. So on Friday morning, I was asked at the last minute to be on our local Fox 32 television station to comment on the meeting. And at that point, we had just heard about the length of it. We didn't really have statements from either side. And we certainly hadn't had Joe Biden's comment about the keep going to communion. And so I got on television and said, oh, no, they're not going to be talking about this whole communion controversy. These are two to heads of state who are going to be discussing their other sh uh, shared areas of concern, the environment and poor and immigrants, etc. And then sure enough, about an hour later, it turns out that they it looks like they did veer into that territory. And I guess I'm not surprised by that either, Dan, because what it seems to be very consistent with what Pope Francis is, which is he's a pastor. And so it seems to me that if he had this previous sort of personal relationship with Joe Biden, where he had been a source of comfort to him after his son died, that he would be a little more personal with him. I think that's his right and his prerogative as the Pope. Of course, Joe Biden's pastor, who would decide whether he receives communion or not, at least when while he's living in Washington, D.C., Cardinal Gregory, has been very clear that he would not deny communion to him. And the very two days later after the meeting, Joe Biden went to Mass at St. Patrick's in Rome and received communion. And there he was at a private Mass on All Saints Day receiving communion as well. He's a, a good Catholic who goes even when it's not a holy day of obligation. Yeah, I, I just want to pick up on that too. Something you said earlier about the claim of it being in politique to, to speak about the experience. I have mixed feelings about that. I don't think that's entirely correct for a couple reasons. One is 
for better and for worse, this is a kind of courtesy that has been torpedoed long ago, particularly by people on the right. And we think, for instance, of the last two years with the Ed Limina visit of the Western bishops who came out and started slandering Jim Martin and other people who are doing LGBTQ plus ministry in the church. And what we see when there's that kind of presentation is that the Holy See responds. The Holy See and other bishops torpedoed their BS, basically, and said that this is not true. This is not how it was discussed. We saw the same thing happen in 2015 when Vigano tried to set Pope Francis up with the Kentucky clerk and you know presented that in a certain light as a spin. And the Holy See responded right away, including sending pictures of Pope Francis meeting with his former student and his, his husband, his partner, as a counter to that. I think it's also important to realize that these private audiences with Pope Francis have a couple different layers to them, and there are oftentimes instructions that are given to those who meet with him. And I think, for instance, of Father Jim Martin, who met privately with Pope Francis, and there are certain things that the Holy Father said that he could say, and certain things that he asked to keep private. And it's my understanding that Joe Biden, who we have to remember is the leader of the free world and knows all kinds of international secrets, despite Michael Sean's, I would say, slightly rude interpretation of a Joe Biden running his mouth, quote unquote, is not taking into full consideration the fact that he actually has quite a lot of very sensitive material on his plate that he keeps in great confidence. All that is to say is Pope Francis to Joe Biden, unlike any president since JFK, is actually his pastor. He is the universal pastor of the Catholic Church. Joe Biden is a good Catholic who's practicing and in, in good standing. And so the relationship, the encounter, the experience was a pastoral ministerial visit as much as it was, as you said, Heidi, two heads of state. But I take issue with people getting all worked up about Joe Biden saying this, particularly since he was, as you rightly noted, was asked the question. He could choose not to respond. But my sense is that this was probably not anything that the Holy See would have a problem with because it's something that Pope Francis has already said publicly. And why wouldn't he say it to the person himself when they're meeting in a pastoral and you know, a, a formal setting? So I, I think that's important for us to realize. I really, to, to David's point, I can't look at that right-wing stuff, not intentionally. The kind of spin and the, even from well-meaning people who I think, you know, I think of our colleague Michael Sean, for instance, and others, there's a lot of projection and transference going on here. And I think that those of us who are familiar with how these private audiences work, it's a little bit more complicated than just the, you know, the outside observer would make it be. You make a good point, Dan. I'm frequently frustrated by how progressives or people on the left are always following all the rules about things and then people on the right do not. And it affects how the you know debate happens or how things end up. So that's a really good point. Well, and I also think it's worth noting, when does the Holy See come out and correct these things? It's usually when, you know, it's not... Joe Biden, it's not Jim Martin, it's not, you know, John Stowe or somebody coming out of a meeting with the Holy Father saying something that upsets alt-right Catholics. It's usually the alt-right trying to spin something to their own advantage and then the Vatican having to say, well, that's not what happened. <laughs> that's You're misconstruing this. And I think that also demonstrates that if Joe Biden said something that was incorrect or that the Holy Father found problematic, he would say as much. Well, I just wanted to respond to something you said earlier too, Dan, though, about how this probably won't change uh, the dynamic of what happens at the bishops' conference meeting coming up in two weeks. I think you're right. The people who are pretty sure that they want to make this about denying communion will still press forward with that. But I think what we saw in June at the meeting were a number of more middle-of-the-road bishops going along with the process of this document because— they were convinced that maybe it wasn't really going to be about denying communion. It was just going to be about holding up the Eucharist as important. So for some of them, I wonder if knowing that this, combined with the Pope's comments on the plane about how he had never denied communion to anyone, together, as well as, as you mentioned, the statements coming out of some other Vatican officials saying, let's not weaponize the Eucharist. I wonder if that might have effect on some of those more in-between bishops. We'll, we'll have to see in a couple of weeks. And that probably is a good place for us to leave this conversation for now. We will certainly be taking up the Bishops' Conference when we have more information about it, as well as any other information that we know about or any other information that we learn about President Biden's visit or its effects in the Vatican and the world. But for right now, you're listening to The Francis Effect. We'll be back in just a moment.
Welcome back to The Francis Effect. I'm Heidi Schlump, and I'm here today with Dan Haran and David Dalt. Every couple of weeks, we get together to discuss news and events through a lens of our shared Catholic faith. Over the past couple of weeks, the U.S. Food and Drug Administration has taken a step long awaited by parents across the country. On October 29th, the FDA approved an emergency use authorization that will allow Pfizer's COVID-19 vaccine to begin to be administered to children ages 5 to 11. Earlier that same week, the FDA's vaccine advisors voted 17 to 0, with one abstention, to recommend the authorization for the vaccine, which is formulated at one-third the dose of the vaccine used for persons ages 12 and older. This is an important step, but it's not the final one in the process. The matter now goes to the Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices at the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. They will meet on November 2nd, which is the day after we're recording, to discuss whether to recommend the use of the vaccine among U.S. children. Once they give their recommendation, then the CDC director, Dr. Rochelle Walensky, will make the final decision on the use of the vaccine. David, I know you have two children under 12, and your family's been waiting for the chance to get them vaccinated. How are you feeling about these recent positive steps towards that finally happening? So I'm feeling hopeful and I'm feeling like, you know, this is a chance for us to rejoin the world in many ways, because, you know, here in Hyde Park, and I've mentioned this at times before on the show, my wife Kira's parents moved here three years ago. And so we've had kind of elderly people to consider in our thoughts about kind of how we're going to approach social distancing and safety. And we've also had unvaccinated children to consider. And so, you know, as Kira's parents have gotten better and better protected and have gotten boosters and what have you, we're feeling always more confident about their safety. But the real kind of weak link in all of this has been our kids. And for a year, we kept them out and we homeschooled them. So they weren't in any kind of social environment that way. They had very limited connections to their friends, which was a toll on them emotionally. And they've, you know, this year they've gone back to school in the public system. And so there is some distancing and safety and masking precautions going on there. But there's always that nagging kind of fear that is just kind of lingering there of when are they going to come home infected? And so any kind of barrier that we can create, any kind of safety measure that we can implement is another step towards sanity and normalcy for our family. And so I'm incredibly excited. I recognize it's not the final step, but man, is it a good step to take to get to this point. And I'm wishing that it could have happened earlier. And I'm understanding that it's not going to happen as fast as we would like and that there are still some things that could go wrong in the process. But I mean, I'm very relieved to have reached this point. But Heidi, I know that you've got young children as well. How are you thinking about this? Well, we've been insulated from this because our kids are over 12. And so last night on the Halloween trick-or-treat trail out with some talking to some other parents, I was reminded again how kind of privileged our family is in that way, that we've been able to consider ourselves vaccinated, already starting the process of the booster shots for, especially for my husband who was vaccinated first because he works in a school. So I know how seriously families with younger kids are taking this. And now we're butting up against the holidays again. So I was speaking with a neighbor who was talking about how important it was for her to get together with her father, having lost her mother over the course of the pandemic, and how if they try to travel at Thanksgiving, then when they come back, they have to quarantine with their children because they have young kids who are not vaccinated again. So I'm sorry this didn't happen sooner, and I know that it's not completely a slam dunk yet. We're still waiting on those decisions, but I'm really hopeful that this will help families with young kids. That said, We keep seeing in the news about vaccinated people getting the virus as well. They just announced today, Jen Psaki announcing that she, although vaccinated, has gotten COVID. So we have to remember that being vaccinated is not get out of jail free card, so to speak. We all still need to be taking precautions about masking and social distancing. I think that's a good reminder. It's also important for us to reflect the the stats that 
those who are fully vaccinated who don't have any other underlying risks are very unlikely to be hospitalized or have a serious illness. And so the importance, again, of being vaccinated, it's not one of these like, well, even if I get vaccinated, I might still get sick. You might have a head cold compared to being on a ventilator. That's a big difference. You know, the other thing, too, is mass immunity, you know, this notion of herd immunity so that even, you know, no one is 100 percent immune. I mean, that's the whole point of being even 90 percent effective. These vaccines are more effective than most vaccines in human history. But there's always a 10 percent chance you're going to get it. I mean, that's written into the statistics. But if everybody or close to everybody who physically can get the vaccine has it, the virus has nowhere to go. And so it's our way of protecting one another. I, for one, am very excited because, you know, I, again, I don't have children, but I do know that notion of a herd immunity or collective kind of response against the virus is really important because it has nowhere to go if the children, too, have some level of immunity based on on vaccination. So it sounds to me, David, like, you know, you and your wife are on board with once the, the approval comes in, having your kids vaccinated. I'm curious about what the two of you think the response of parents are going to be in general but also, are schools going to mandate this because they already do, right? Parents know MMR, what is it, MMR and these other vaccines that are required to go to school. It seems to me like this would be a perfectly reasonable thing to tag on. Well, I, I just want to speak to that because COVID has repeatedly been treated as a unique case against things that are more accepted like the MMR vaccine that you've talked about or, or kind of other vaccinations that have been standard for school children for at least as long as I've been alive and probably for longer, and certainly polio and other sorts of vaccines as well. A good example of that is in the school where our kids go, which is in the Chicago public school system. When we were coming out of summer, there was an indication that there would be testing school-wide. And then when that was finally rolled out at the city level, it turned out that it wasn't testing for everybody. It was opt-in testing for parents that chose to do it. So our kids are getting tested twice a week, but they are the rarity in the school because most parents have not opted in. And that might be because the parents have some kind of strong ideological resistance to it, or it could be that CPS is also really bad about communicating with parents, which we've encountered again and again, you know, in, in our kind of forays into the public system. And so, I mean, there's a lot of reasons why the way in which we are approaching this problem at every level, and we said this earlier in the program, it kind of mirrors the same problem on a smaller scale with climate change. Because again, we're not able to get the information that we need to actually make active, real-time decisions. Instead, the information is always distanced or clouded or in some way is made less accurate than it could be. It's incredibly frustrating for me as both a parent and a citizen to not have access to the information that I need to make good decisions about the health of my world and my family. And so for me, even though I'm excited by the possibilities of the, the vaccine being available for our kids, I'm also aware that for a number of reasons, none of them really nefarious or malicious, a lot of parents are simply not going to get involved in getting their kids vaccinated or even getting their kids into programs that would give them information in real time about whether or not their kids are healthy. And so that's my take. Well, I think most parents will do what we always do when we have a health question about our children, and that's we'll ask our doctors. And so if you go to your kid's pediatrician and who knows your own child's health history, I know our pediatrician who we consulted uh, very strenuously and highly recommended that we get our kids vaccinated as soon as we could. And we even have some health issues with one of our children. So I, you know, I can accept that some parents might be reluctant. It's still emergency authorization. You're talking about doses for much smaller people. So any sort of medication affects children differently than it might adults. But you make a strong point, Dan, about the importance of herd immunity. I guess the point I would raise, too, as we're all moving towards our boosters and our kids getting vaccinated is just to not lose sight of the fact that there are still people all over the world without access to the vaccine. And we we need to continue to push to make sure that countries like ours, where we, because of fluence and because of our privilege and because of the way at least this administration has acted to make sure that there's lots of vaccine available for us, that we remember that we're global citizens too, and that we have to, we can't uh, beat the virus just in this country unless we're just going to, you know, stop international travel, travel in and out of our country. So we really need to look at this as a global problem. 
I haven't seen any news reports about this, but I'm curious, what is the reaction of the bishops and to a greater extent of pastors, rank and file pastors, to the possibility of, of vaccinating children? Has there been a strong positive? Has there been the kind of pockets of resistance that we've seen to the adult vaccination? Like, how is this playing out at the Episcopal level? I don't know. They're too busy chasing certain windmills to decide. No, no. I mean, the Don Quixote reference aside, I, honestly, I haven't heard anything. I think it's it's still too new a subject. And my sense is, you know, that those who are already vaccine skeptical or have delusions about its provenance and this kind of stuff, I, I think that's not going to change. Much like our conversation about the, the Eucharistic document with the USCCB, I think those who are of a certain mindset are, are inclined to stay that way. And those who recognize, you know, the prioritization of the common good, which is actually the church's teaching, are going to say that if your children are healthy and able to do so and, you're, and their pediatrician gives the thumbs up, you should go ahead and do this and do it as soon as possible. So that's my sense. Heidi, have you heard anything? Uh, just quick check while you were speaking, Dan, of the press releases coming out of the USCCB. Nothing specifically about this vaccine for children. They haven't said anything yet. But I think you're right, Dan, it'll probably fall on quote unquote partisan partisan lines as well. I'm thinking about my dear friend, Alec and his wife, Kathy. They were there at our wedding. Alec was my best man when Kira and I got married. I've known Alec for close to 30 years now. And they live in the Netherlands. And my understanding is that when COVID first hit, Countries like the Netherlands kind of closed down and prioritized things like child safety and getting children back into schools safely. Whereas here in America, we prioritized businesses and bars. And we really prioritized kind of social activities for adults at the expense of children. And so, again, I am very cynical about a lot of the ways in which we are approaching this as a culture and as a society because we tend to deprioritize the vulnerable in favor of the powerful and the comforts of the powerful. And so, you know, I'm doing my best here to try and remain rah-rah optimistic about the fact that the FDA is moving this forward finally, but I'm wishing that somehow they could have moved it forward or prioritized it in a way where this could have happened over the summer when we could be really planning for safe reopening and really kind of prioritizing the safety of children because we still don't know. We don't have enough data about how COVID is going to affect kids long term when they get it, even if they get it with a vaccine. And so, you know, there's a lot of variables here that are out of our control. There are a lot of things that we still don't know. But as a culture, we tend to be operating with a real move towards the importance of capital and the importance of commerce, not the importance of human bodies. And Longtime listeners have heard me harp on this before on many different kind of issues along the spectrum. But for me, I mean, it's just once again a repeat of the same flaw that we have uh, rush towards capital at all costs. Well, thanks for that segue, David, because I really wanted to get this in here somehow and, and I didn't know if it would apply. I want to stop talking about the supply chains. <laughs> like, I know this is important and I understand that people who have livelihoods and businesses who are frustrated by this, but the idea that we can't all buy the junk we need to buy each other at Christmas time because of supply chains being interrupted. I just feel like that's a perfect example of what you were saying. Like, this is the priority. I need to be able to get to Walmart and buy my big screen TV on Black Friday, <laughs> when really people around the world are still really suffering from the pandemic and children have not yet been prioritized in terms of their health. So well, I'm already thinking about Christmas differently this year and how, hey, let's see the supply chain thing as a blessing in disguise and a chance to give of ourselves instead of just give stuff purchased at the supermarket or whatever. That's really insightful. I've long hated the day after Thanksgiving sales and this kind of rush, you know, part of it is because when it comes to gift giving, I'm a procrastinator. I, it's a stressful experience for me. Some people love the shopping and all this, and I don't. So I admit there's a, a personality element to it. But also there's something so distasteful about the, the revolving door of the kind of capitalistic commercial push I think about that most clearly whenever you walk into a Walgreens or a CVS and they have that quote unquote seasonal aisle and it's always half one season ahead of where you're currently going. And so, you know, the Halloween candy was out and so were, you know, Advent wreaths and, and candy canes and this kind of stuff. And it's just a little bit too much. And I wonder, you know, 
especially after the last two years that have been so difficult and people have been so have suffered so much to being so far away from one another. Maybe our gift is, you know, to vaccinate oneself, to wear a mask, to get in a car or on an airplane and go be with the people you love. You know, enough of this crap you buy on the internet. <laughs> you know, that's my thought. And it, it wouldn't be nice for us to have a truly incarnational embodied Christmas this season where we are with one another in person without taking it for granted and with a spirit of gratitude, because that truly is a gift. And it's a gift I missed last year. Well, we know that a lot of listeners are wrestling with these same sorts of questions about how to keep your family safe and how to be with your loved ones at times like the holidays. And so please know that you remain in our prayers as you're making these hard decisions and moving through these uncertain spaces. And we ask, of course, as you have time, if you would pray for us, because we really need that as well and for our families. So thank you again. We're going to leave the conversation here. Father Dan, Heidi, thank you again so much for being here. Friends, you've been listening to The Francis Effect, and you'll hear us again in a couple of weeks. The Francis Effect is produced by Sandberg Media LLC and is recorded remotely in Chicago, Illinois and South Bend, Indiana. It's edited by me at the William Adams Studios in Hyde Park on Chicago's beautiful South Side. The opinions of this program are our own and do not reflect the positions of any organizations with which we may be affiliated. We want to give a shout out to the Salt and Light Catholic Media Foundation. They are not affiliated with our program, but they did give us their kind permission to use the name The Francis Effect, and we appreciate it very much. Please check out their good work at slmedia.org. This show was made possible in part by our Patreon supporters, and if you'd like to join them, please go to patreon.com slash francisfxpod. We appreciate it very much. Please follow us on Twitter and Facebook. Both of those are at francisfxpod, and our website is also francisfxpod.com. Please tell your friends about the show, and if you're here for the first time, we have seasons and seasons of episodes that you can go back to and listen to for your heart's content. We're so glad that you're here. Heidi and Father Daniel and I will be back in about two weeks. We're looking forward to being with you then. Thank you again for listening.